Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today, I am discussing the case of Molly Bish from Warren, Massachusetts. 16-year-old Molly was dropped off by her mother for her eighth day of work as a lifeguard, and only minutes later, she was gone. Her disappearance would spark the largest and most expensive search in Massachusetts history. Through the efforts of her family, Molly's case would also evoke massive changes in the state of Massachusetts, and for families of the missing and crime victims everywhere. This is the case of Molly Bish. The Bish family is originally from Detroit, but moved to Warren, Massachusetts to escape the violent crime of the city. For this episode, I had the chance to speak with Molly's older sister, Heather, who was in her early 20s when Molly went missing. I do have to give a quick shout out to Tim and Lance from Crawlspace Media for introducing me to Heather. Truth be told, after researching her family and speaking with her, she's definitely a personal hero of mine. But here's Heather talking more about this move and their family dynamic. Uh, We actually moved here from Michigan when I was three years old. My mom was um, from Michigan and met my dad in college. And after they had me, there was a a murder in their neighborhood. And they thought maybe we should move back to where my dad was from. Um, It's a small town. It's classic kind of case of thinking it's a little bit safer than, you know, the Detroit area. Um, So we moved uh, to Massachusetts when I was three. And my brother came along shortly thereafter. And Molly came around about six years later. She's six years younger than me. She was born actually at home in our in our house. My, my parents are kind of these sort of old hippies. And, um, you know, it was kind of when I was six, I, you know, it was really exciting. But then, you know, your mom goes into labor, it becomes a little scary. But when when Molly was born, you know, it, it was like she was my baby. Um, you know, I, I had had a brother for so long. And all he wanted to do was play with trucks and, and get in the dirt. And I was really sick of that. So I was so excited to have Molly. I wanted her to be just like me. And I imagined, you know, having a best friend. Um, And, you know, as we grew up, we, we had those typical, you know, sister fights over clothes. And, you know, she wanted us, my friends, uh, you know, when I was an adolescent to go play uh, Barbies with her. And she was always, you know, trying to get in and, and play with us. And, you know, we had those typical fights, but Molly, when she was getting older into her teenage years and I was in college, we became closer. You, you kind of grow into that relationship as you get older and you do become more more um, like best friends. And so Molly came to visit me at college a few times. I didn't, I didn't really go away that far. I was about an hour away. And she would stay some weekends with me. And, um, you know, we, we remained close, even though I was, you know, in college um, for four years before she disappeared. Um, I had moved back, uh, that, that year, um, home and was unexpectedly, surprisingly pregnant. So, uh, my daughter was born 11 months before Molly disappeared and Molly was her godmother. And, um, I, we actually inherited our grandmother's house, which was right down the street from my parents' home. So it was really convenient when you're a young mother to live that close to your family and Molly would come down. And, and feed Michaela and, and play with her. And in fact, that morning that she disappeared, she stopped in because we had had a little uh, stomach bug and hadn't seen her for a couple of days and she had missed Michaela. And um, so she had come by that morning right before she left. And I'm always so grateful for that because I had a chance to hug her and she had a chance to you know spend a little more time with Michaela. So that those moments were, you know, it's it's those tiny moments you don't realize are are so important to, you know, hindsight. Um, and so, you know, we kind of grew up in a in a in a small family. It was just my brother and my sister and my parents. Um, my grandmother lived down the street. We had a um, an uncle uncle that lived um, nearby, but it was really just us. So our 
you know, our holidays were quite small and we were very close. We went to each other's soccer games and horseback riding shows. And, um, you know, we were, we were just, uh, of course, this is, you know, before Facebook and, and cell phones. So you didn't have as much distractions. Um, but yeah, we were, we were a very close family. And, you know, I guess that's why when Molly went missing and, and the police didn't look for her and they later said, oh, she ran away or she's, you know, left her job. We, we knew that wasn't what Molly would do. We knew her character. We knew, I mean, I knew that my sister wouldn't walk around without her shoes on. So right there, I was totally freaked out when I saw her shoes at the pond that day. Um, so I, I guess that's, that's sort of, you know, how we, we grew up. My parents, uh, again, they were kind of these old hippies and they, they believed in, uh, even if you just had a little something extra, you would, you should help another person. And my mom was a teacher. My dad was a probation officer. We were, you know, really middle class. We lived in a little ranch house. We didn't have much extra, but my mom would buy extra mittens and hats and we would give them to the kids who didn't have any. And so we grew up sort of, or sort of learning that's how, how you operate in life is you take care of each other. And I think that's really contributed to how we've continued Molly's legacy after she's been gone. Warren is a pretty small town with only about 5,000 residents, but it's known for having excellent schools and a tight-knit community. To John and Maggie Bish, it seemed like a great place to raise their kids. You know, when we when Molly disappeared, we didn't really know that this kind of thing would happen. We lived in a small town. We didn't lock our doors. We thought we knew all our neighbors. We thought we were all friends. And the moment that Molly was gone, we started looking around us and thinking, oh, maybe that guy over there doesn't look so friendly, or maybe we don't know our neighbors as well. And maybe Molly's friends aren't really her friends. Uh, You know, we did, we looked at everybody, we questioned everybody. Uh, And that's a scary place to arrive at because your whole world rocks and you, I don't think you ever get the perspective back again that you're safe in any capacity. Molly's father, John Sr., worked as a probation officer, and her mother, Maggie, worked as an elementary school teacher after Molly, who was the youngest, entered kindergarten. Like Heather briefly mentioned, Molly had two older siblings, Heather, who you just heard from, who was the oldest, and John Sr., who was just a few years older than Molly. Here is Heather describing what Molly was like. Molly um, was funny and silly. She actually was diagnosed with ADHD early on in, in, in school because she was so, um, you, you know, active, let's say. Uh, but she was she would be that kid, you know, in outfield picking the, the daisies and putting them in her hair. Yet she she would catch that, you know, that ball and then get somebody out. She was a very good athlete. She was a very strong swimmer. She played three sports. She helped start the soccer team, the girls soccer team at our high school. Um, she loved like Forrest Gump and um, laughing and being silly. She had friends and like we you know we had a really small school we're from a small town it was probably you know 50 to 100 kids in a graduating class depending on the year and so there was you know you kind of got to know everybody and Molly just was friends with everybody she she definitely had um a a weak spot for the underdog Uh, when I was um doing my student teaching she was in high school and I remember one of the um, aides, an instructional aide in the classroom that brought like special ed kids into like an art class, telling me that when Molly was in the class with those kids, she would always like welcome them in and make it a big deal and high five them and, and make them feel included as opposed to sitting in the back of the class, you know, in sort of an exclusionary way. She, she um, loved people. She really felt, um, she was very sensitive. She really felt um you know, when things were happening in the world, you know, and understanding and sort of making sense of that, she really felt, um, you know, very emotional about things. You know, I remember her friends, um, a couple of her friends had been in a car accident in the April before she disappeared. And she just had such a hard time with that. She was just so, so sad. Um, You know, I, I wondered how sometimes with the world today, I wondered how Molly would have handled all this. Um, and, um, you know, I don't know, I, you know, we often dream about what she would be and how she would be. And, 
she loved babies. Molly was funny when she was little. She really was really loved babies, and she would have to get the real baby clothes. So my mom would take her to um, a store in the next town and buy real baby clothes. Uh, she loved to sing. She loved to make jewelry. Um, she loved her friends. She spent you know so many nights and sleepover parties or having her friends over our house. She loved being in love. She had a, a boyfriend in high school for about three years, and he graduated and went to college. And, and when that happened, she sort of uh, was single for a while, and then she had gotten this new boyfriend um, who, she had, who was, she was dating when she disappeared. But that had only been like a three-month relationship. Um, she, you know, she loved my, my Michaela. She loved being an aunt. Um, she really looked up to her brother. She, you know, she wanted to be as good of a baseball player or a soccer player as he was. She really was great because she was kind of, um, I, I joke about my brother and I, are, he's an athlete. I'm sort of a fall up the stairs kind of person. Um, so we're kind of different. He's very good at saving money. I'm, I'm you know, the one that buys those shoes and <laughs> eats the cake, you know. And, and so Molly was a good mix of both of us. Um, and and that was really um, fun to see develop in her. And, you know, like I said, we were just starting that sort of grown up relationship. And, you know, I miss not having, um, you know, I, I just imagine that, you know, having a, a sister would be like having a built in best friend, you know, you just, they, especially a little sister, you know, you get to just tell them what to do and they'll, you know, falling around, and that's how it's supposed to be. Um, so I had hoped that that's, um, you know, what what would have happened. I imagined it would have been, um, and I, you know, I still miss her every day. Molly excelled in pretty much every area, but she especially loved sports. She played basketball, soccer, and softball. She was also on the swim team and was an excellent swimmer. In the year 2000, when Molly was 16, her brother John was leaving his job as a lifeguard at Cummings Pond and offered to train Molly to take his place. She was thrilled, but also took the job very seriously. John taught her everything about this new job. He taught her how to use the police radio. They used this every single day to check in with the police and for emergencies. He also taught her how to clean the beach, get the first aid ready, how to check the water, look for snakes, all of that. Cummings Pond was and still is a pretty popular area for locals. It even has a 4.9 out of 5 stars rating on Google to this day. Basically, it's this man-made lake at the end of a dead-end road that is surrounded by these thick, wooded areas. Outside of the pond, there are a ton of hiking trails and places to take ATVs. So there were always hikers, people walking their dogs, and bike cops that would patrol the trails. Since John Jr. worked at the pond previously, continued to swim there pretty much every morning, and the entire family was familiar with the area, it seemed like Molly taking his place was a natural fit. On the morning of Monday, June 26, 2000, at approximately 10 a.m., Maggie drops off Molly for her seventh day of work as a lifeguard. When Maggie pulls up, Molly says goodbye, jumps out of the car, and heads towards her station to get to work. But Maggie doesn't leave just yet, because she sees this man with salt and pepper hair and a mustache smoking a cigarette in a white car. In interviews, she stated that she just had this mama bear feeling that she didn't want to leave Molly alone with this guy. So Maggie gets out of the car and stays with Molly for a while while she gets her station organized. Maggie also mentions to Molly that she was a little concerned about there being so many men around the area. But Molly just kind of blows this off, telling her mom that it was fine and it was just a bunch of fishermen around the area. Eventually, Maggie does start to feel a little bit better and goes back to the car to leave, but the man is still there, doing nothing in his car but smoking a cigarette. So Maggie just kind of stalls in her car until the guy leaves, just pretending to be busy. Although she felt that something was wrong in her gut, she rationalizes with herself that she was probably just being overprotective. On this day, Molly completes her full shift without incident. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by Quince. The weather is getting warmer, which means it's time to put away all the sweaters and pants and say hello to shorts and t-shirts. I absolutely was looking to update my wardrobe without spending a fortune. And I went right back to Quince for that. 
I personally don't love trendy clothes that I have to replace every few months. I am looking to build my solid core collection of essentials. And with the huge selection at Quince, I can do that. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from 30 bucks, washable silk tops, they have jewelry, and so much more. One thing I really love about Quince too is that they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And they only use premium fabrics and finishes, so you're not cutting any corners when it comes to quality. I've really been trying to play with pairing casual with more upscale pieces. So recently I just matched a silk skirt with this black tee that I just love and fits really, really well. I think it came together pretty cute. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com justice for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot justice to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com justice. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The next day, now Tuesday, June 27th, Maggie gets a call that one of Molly's teammates was in a very serious car accident and is in critical condition. So Maggie crawls into Molly's bed that morning to break the news to her and just kind of love on her, telling her that everything would be okay. Molly is obviously pretty shaken up, but she decides to go to work anyway. This day was the first day of swimming lessons, and she knew how important it was that she be there. So Molly gets up, gets dressed, and out the door. Before going to the pond, Maggie and Molly stop at a convenience store to pick up some water and make their way to the police station to pick up the two-way radio that she used each morning to check in and report any emergencies. It's important to note here that this is really the only form of communication that Molly would have while at the pond. She didn't have a cell phone and there was no payphone on site. They get to Cummings Pond around 10 a.m., that morning, there was a truck on site and a few workers delivering sand for the beach. And in a few minutes, there would be a ton of parents and kids showing up for the swim lessons. So Maggie feels comfortable leaving Molly. They both say, I love you, and Molly runs out of the car to her eighth day of work. Molly would never check in with the police that morning, as was the normal protocol. But apparently, this didn't seem to alarm anyone. About 20 minutes later, the first swimmers start to arrive, and one of the moms realizes that Molly wasn't at her station. It's important to note here that there was no actual lifeguard tower like you might see at the beach or at a public pool, but instead, it was pretty much just a beach chair. The beach chair was obviously empty, but next to the chair was Molly's water bottle from the convenience store along with her flip-flops, whistle, police radio, and an open first aid kit. No one seems to really question why Molly is gone. They just kind of start swim lessons with this mother having taken Molly's place. After about an hour or so, this mom is like, okay, well, I need to leave now. I guess I better tell someone that there's no lifeguard here. So she calls Molly's boss, Ed Fett, the head of the Parks Commission, to say that there was no lifeguard on duty. Ed gets to the pond to confirm, he rummages around in the first aid kit, and around noon, he calls the police on the radio to tell them that Molly was missing. Unfortunately, the Warren Police Department doesn't take action right away, and they wait about an hour to see if Molly might just show back up. It wouldn't be until 1 p.m. that Maggie received the call from the police chief that Molly was missing. She realizes immediately that something was wrong. So Maggie calls Heather, who lives right down the street, and says get to the pond now. 
but before Heather can even get to the pond, she sees her mother flagging her down in the street and says we need to go to the police station. When they get there, they speak about Molly, and they try to get a hold of John Sr., who was driving around seeing his clients who were on probation. It was obviously pretty chaotic at this point. Heather starts going to all of Molly's friends' houses. She also calls the hospital where her friend was in the ICU to ask if she was there. And she goes to Molly's boyfriend's house, but no one has seen or heard from Molly. The police are trying to calm everyone down, saying that Molly probably just left with some friends, maybe they were off doing drugs in the woods, or maybe Molly just ran away. But her family immediately knew that Molly wouldn't leave her post, especially on the first day of swimming lessons and without her shoes. The thing is, the Warren Police Department had never really dealt with a case like Molly's, so they call in the state police to assist. Since Molly's family was insisting that she wouldn't just leave and that none of her friends had seen her or heard from her, at this point, the fire and police department start to speculate that maybe Molly drowned, and that's why her shoes were still on the beach. But again, Molly's family is like, absolutely not. Molly is an excellent swimmer and an athlete. They just found it extremely difficult to believe that Molly could have drowned. Despite this, John Jr. actually dives into the water and begins looking for Molly himself. He swam this pond every morning and was confident that if Molly was in that water, he'd find her. John wouldn't stop looking for Molly in the water until the police physically pulled him out. They do send in dive teams to the water, and eventually the police come around and decide that they should probably search for Molly outside of the water as well. This would ultimately become the largest search in the history of the state of Massachusetts. They search for her all day, and when it gets dark, they bring in these huge lights to keep searching, but they come up with nothing. In the following days and weeks, they brought in hundreds of officers and trained volunteers. They brought in dogs, more dive teams, people on horseback, ATVs, sonar equipment, helicopters, bloodhounds, and even turkey vultures. In my interview with Heather, she pointed out that although there was this massive search effort for Molly, no one was really assessing the scene along with her behaviors to try to figure out what happened. Molly was a very responsible 16-year-old who left most of her worldly possessions at home, including some uncashed checks and her driver's license. Plus, Molly was barefoot in a bathing suit, and none of her friends had seen her, so the thought of her running away or that she was just doing drugs in the woods was pretty outlandish to her family. In addition to this, the scene seemed to indicate that there could be foul play involved. Let's break it down starting with the sandals. We know that Molly was barefoot, but it's important to note that her family has stated that she was notorious for hating the feeling of the earth under her feet, especially anything squishy between her toes. So voluntarily walking into the woods or anywhere but the beach barefoot seemed highly unlikely to those who knew her. Next is the open first aid kit. If Molly was alone, waiting for swimmers, why would she have opened up the first aid kit? If she was injured to the point where she felt like she needed first aid and to leave her post, that was exactly what the police radio was for. But Molly never checked in that morning, which again was protocol, and she never called in any type of injury. I and many others think a very likely scenario was that someone approached Molly stating that they were hurt. Molly gets up, leaving the whistle, water bottle, radio, and her shoes in place. She then grabs the first aid kit, opens it up to get supplies, and that's when she's grabbed by someone. Unfortunately, by the time that the police considered the area to be a crime scene, it was beyond contaminated. The mother had taken Molly's post in the chair, and there were a ton of kids and parents walking all around the beach, even before the first responders arrived. There were fingerprints all over the radio, all over the first aid kit. It was a mess. So they weren't able to gather much from the scene. The bloodhounds were able to track Molly's scent from the pond up to a nearby cemetery. What's important to note here about this is that from the cemetery, you can actually kind of see down to the pond area. So it's entirely possible that someone was at the cemetery, saw that Molly was alone, and decided to take her. Maybe even the man in the white car that Maggie saw the day before Molly went missing. Maggie describes this man to the police as being in his 50s with salt and pepper hair and a mustache. Ultimately, two sketches are made. 
The more widely used sketch was created by Jean Boylan, who famously created the sketch of the Unabomber, and it has a lot more detail. She actually spent nine hours with Maggie Bish to create this sketch. It shows the ruffling of his brow when he looked at Maggie, there's a lot of character around the eyes, and he's holding a cigarette. Maggie's encounter with this man was taken very seriously by the police. They set up a roadblock and ask every single person if they saw anyone in a white vehicle near the pond. Several people actually noted seeing a suspicious man in a white vehicle in the area. Most notably, the workers in the cemetery that overlooks Cummings Pond remember seeing a man and a vehicle matching the description at the cemetery in the days before Molly went missing. Obviously, the police think that there's a pretty good chance that this guy could be their guy, and they begin to circulate the sketch and get tips from all over the country. These tips turn into leads and thus turn into a ton of persons of interest to investigate. To be honest, this is where I really struggled with this episode. Going through each and every person of interest that has been named in this case, going through every person of interest that matches the sketch or was in the area, could be an entire series in itself. So if you are interested in diving deeper into the mass amounts of people that they were looking at in this case, you can get lost for hours on Google or newspapers.com. Again, the search was just so broad. The district attorney's office would even order a search of 125 white cars in the area, but they find nothing. Of course, the police do look into the family, but they were cleared pretty quickly. After this, they go right to Molly's boyfriend, Steve Lucas. Steve did come from a troubled family. There were some domestic violence issues, and his father sold some weed. Molly actually wasn't even allowed to go to his house because things were so bad. But other than coming from a troubled home, there didn't seem to be much else pointing to Steve as being the perpetrator. He'd actually been at home sleeping all day. But it is interesting to note that Steve did have a new strange cut on his lip that day. Steve says that he hit his face on something, but at least one of his friends said it was a cold sore. Although Steve was at the pond just two hours after Molly went missing and speaking to her family, some investigators say that they find it odd that Steve didn't appear to be participating in any of the searches for Molly. However, it's important to note that Steve did comply with and pass a polygraph test. He has also never been named a suspect in this case. The Bish family doesn't believe that Steve could have taken Molly but the police go for him so hard that to this day, Heather considers Steve to be the second largest victim in Molly's case. He was a kid with a rough home life without any parents to help him navigate this situation, but the Bishes don't think that he could have harmed Molly. The police also look into Park Commissioner Ed Fetz, whose fingerprints were found on the first aid kit and the police radio. In addition to this, what I find to be super interesting is that according to John Jr., he'd actually seen Ed the morning that Molly went missing at a hardware store, and Ed was buying rope and duct tape. John also found it pretty strange that he never mentioned that Molly was missing when he saw him in the store that day. Ed Fetz would later face unrelated sexual abuse allegations, but has never officially been named a suspect in Molly's case. At this point, the police just start rounding up a ton of local sex offenders and start giving them polygraph tests. Some people pass, some people fail, but nothing leads to finding Molly. They also look into the clients of John Bish Sr., who you might remember was a probation officer, thinking that maybe someone held a grudge against him and came after Molly. But it turns out that he was rather well-liked. And this, again, led to nothing. Molly's case really did captivate the nation. She was featured on America's Most Wanted, Unsolved Mysteries, Haunting Evidence, and so many other programs. There are also hundreds of sightings of Molly all around the country. But again, nothing leads us to Molly. It wouldn't be until mid-2003 that there was a huge break in Molly's case. This break actually came from the case of 10-year-old Holly Perinian, who was taken from Sturbridge, just a few towns over from Warren. This happened in 1993, seven years before Molly went missing. The connection here gave me goosebumps, because not only would Holly's case lead to a break in Molly's case, but there's also another connection. Heather recalls that when they heard about Holly's case in church way back in 1993, they'd been encouraged to write letters of support to the family, 
and Molly wrote one. Then when Molly went missing, the Perineans came forward with Molly's letter and to help the Bish family. This isn't the break in the case, just a crazy connection that I couldn't overlook. Imagine your kid is so thoughtful that they write a letter of support to a family whose child went missing and later goes missing herself. The irony is just too much. But I think it also shows what a thoughtful person Molly was. Unfortunately, Holly was later found deceased by hunters who came across her remains in the woods. Her case remains unsolved to this day. But this is where the break in Molly's case comes in. In 2003, a retired officer who worked on Holly's case comes to Warren for Molly's case because he believes there could be a connection. Both girls were blonde-haired and blue-eyed, and both were taken from remote areas that weren't too far apart from each other. So the retired officer decides to talk to local hunters in Warren to see if they've seen anything suspicious. And one guy says, well, a few months ago, I saw something in the woods that I thought was kind of weird, but I didn't think much of it at the time. And this officer is like, please take me to this place. This area is pretty desolate and apparently only really known to local hunters, but it wasn't far from where Molly went missing. When they get to this area, the hunter shows the officer what he saw. It's a piece of a blue bathing suit, the same color bathing suit that Molly was wearing when she went missing. They actually end up taking this piece of bathing suit, splitting it apart, and sending it to two different labs. While they're waiting for the results, they of course launch a huge search of 500 acres of this super dense forest area. Six days into the search, the test results come back. It was Molly's bathing suit. Unfortunately, they weren't able to find any other DNA on the suit, but they continue to search the area. And a few weeks later, they find 26 bones belonging to Molly Bish. They were ultimately found about five miles away from Cummings Pond and only two and a half miles from Molly's home. On August 2nd, 2003, on what would have been Molly's 20th birthday, the Bish family is finally able to lay her to rest at a ceremony honoring her life. Her bones were put into a children's casket and then into a larger casket. She was buried with her prom dress, a Tigger stuffed animal, and a slew of items and letters from her friends and family. Although the family finally had answers as to whether or not Molly was still alive, they still had no solid evidence telling them who killed her. While the police continued to investigate, the Bish family decided to carry on Molly's legacy through helping others. On May 25, 2004, Maggie and John Bish created the Molly Bish Foundation. According to their website, they aim to, quote, spread the knowledge and understanding of child and family safety and promote legislative reform. Our mission and goals are achieved through legislative advocacy and educational presentations, end quote. I cannot stress how much this family has done for other families of missing and murdered children. These types of events can absolutely rip families apart. It happens all the time. But the Bish family really came together for Molly and for other families. They offered ID kits for hundreds of kids. They brought the Amber Alert to Massachusetts. They have provided countless hours of police training and so much more. Here is Heather elaborating on these efforts. It really just started with uh, the police asking us for a, <clears throat> a good head and shoulders picture of Molly. And we didn't have one. My parents didn't even know where the camera was by that point. Um, so you know, we, we felt like when we learned that one in six children is recovered with a good photo, that sort of became our, our um, way to educate and help others. We just, we, we didn't know the statistics. We didn't know that um, how many sex offenders lived in our area. We just didn't know any of those things. And um, knowing that, you know, sort of arms you with, um, you know, sort of the the impetus to have to do something if you know then you you can't unknow something and so you have to sort of move forward and we didn't really have control of the investigation I mean from the beginning you know they didn't look for Molly for three hours they you know the fire department thought she drowned they they blamed you know her running away they blamed the boyfriend they they spent so much time chasing you know, the wrong things that we, and we didn't have any control of that. And the only thing we could control is how 
we could help others. And, you know, it just started with that. We thought other families need to know if there was a guy out there stealing kids, then everybody needed to know how to protect their children. And it sort of start, sort of started with that concept and, and grew because then we started learning about the criminal justice system. And my mom and I are both teachers. So we come from, you know, a system that <clears throat> works together. We have the autism specialist and the gym teacher and the third grade teacher all in a room together coming up with plans for children. So we're, we're used to working together. And, you know, the criminal justice system doesn't exactly work that way. And, you know, there's a lot of egos. There's a lot of not playing in the sandbox together. And so we, we tried to, you know, not get angry about that, but to try to support change in those dynamics. So, you know, my father would sponsor um, law enforcement officers to go down to the National Center for training because law enforcement isn't really trained in missing persons cases. In fact, municipal police today are still not trained in how to respond to a missing child. So it's kind of scary. I mean, that's in Massachusetts. Um, it's, and it's kind of scary. And, you know, it's been 20 years. And, and, and so, you know, we don't know. It's, it's really up to the level of the department on, on what they know about how to react to a missing child. And I think some towns in Massachusetts do a good job and others could certainly use the improvement. Uh, but it really started out with how can we support improvement? Because there wasn't much that we could do to change their minds or to um, tell them what to do. And so it kind of started with how can we help them get smarter? You know, it's kind of like, don't work harder, work smarter kind of concept. And and so it started with trainings and, and advocacy, and then it developed into legislation. And my parents helped bring uh, the Amber Alert program to Massachusetts. Uh, they were there when the Adam Walsh Act was signed uh, by President Bush. Uh, they worked on numerous, numerous initiatives. And it was it was different for John and I. I mean, we were, I was 23 when my sister disappeared and John was 19. You know, we were just developing like who we were and, and what, what we, what we stood for and what our, you know, what, what, what our life was going to be. So we didn't really get that twenties, you know, that you kind of had that self-discovery and we kind of just followed our parents lead and we would have these, um, what we would call fragile Fridays and, you know, no matter where we were, we'd meet at this little uh, diner in the next town and we'd, we'd have, you know, fried fish or whatever. And they had these old fashioned candy machines and my daughter would, you know, beg for candies. And, you know, sometimes we wouldn't talk about anything. And other times we would have so much to discuss. And, you know, there most of the times we weren't in the same place. We were often on our own journey of grief and, and making sense of this. But we always came together. And I think that's sort of what kind of kept our family together in some ways. I mean, it's certain that, you know, John and I have felt some abandonment issues when, you know, when our parents were swept away from, from losing Molly. And, um, you know, there's certain, certainly, um, you know, some family pain and, and suffering that has, has happened, but we have maintained being able to stay together. And, you know, even now my parents come down and visit me. I, I moved about two hours away from home and they come out about once a month and, you know, I get back to see my brother and his children every so often. But, you know, it, it started with them showing us what to do. While Maggie and John Bish ran the foundation, Molly's case continued on. For almost three years, the police presented information on Molly's case to a grand jury, presenting multiple potential perpetrators. On December 23, 2006, the grand jury convened, determining that there wasn't enough evidence to convict anyone in Molly's case. John Bish Sr. told the Boston Globe that while the family hoped for an arrest in the case, quote, We are grateful for the work that the grand jury has done. It has served to preserve testimony that has been collected by the state police, the leads, and evidence that they had. End quote. Unfortunately, in 2007, John Bish suffered from a stroke and had to take a backseat in Molly's investigation and the Molly Bish Foundation. Unfortunately, my father had a stroke in 2007, um, and it was really a, a bad stroke, and he lost um, his periphery vision and his uh, short-term memory, and um, he has what you call left-side neglect. And, um, but, you know, the amazing thing from that 
was that my dad before the stroke had carried this weight of having lost Molly. He was the father, he was a probation officer. You know, he he felt the weight of that, you know, really strongly. And and after the stroke, it sort of vanished. I mean, he knew Molly disappeared, he was sad about it, but he just wants to be with his family. He's just happy to sit in the by the window having a coffee, looking at the birds and being together. It, it, you know, it almost released him from that burden and allowed him to still live with us so we, we could still experience having a dad and a, and a grandfather but it did change my life and and I sort of inherited the investigation and, and the foundation and, and the political work my mom was um, really busy working you know taking care of my dad and she was working and so it sort of fell to my shoulders and you know I was you know just like you in the beginning very uh committed to screaming from every mountain and looking under every every rock and and trying to find my sister I, I also put up billboards and I took out newspaper ads in almost every newspaper in Massachusetts I've put um, flyers in every single town in Massachusetts I've um, you know worked with different you know private investigators I've, I've held tip campaigns um, I, I, I've tried everything that I could possibly think of to, um, you know, sort of shake that tree and get that missing piece of information. While Heather was taking over the responsibilities of Molly's case and the foundation, there would be a major break in Molly's case when a man all the way in Florida was arrested. In 2009, Rodney Stanger was arrested and charged with the murder of his girlfriend, Crystal Morrison. When Crystal's sister Bonnie went to collect her items from Rodney's home, not only did she find items that appeared to belong to younger girls, but she also found a Massachusetts license with a picture of a much younger Rodney on it. A much younger Rodney that looked a lot like the sketch of the man in the white car. When investigators took a closer look at Rodney Stanger, they realized that he was an avid hunter and fisherman who lived in the area when Molly went missing. He was actually even born in Warren. Rodney also has a history of violence and drug abuse. And although he never owned a white car matching the description Maggie Bish gave the police, his brother did. Rodney was also in his late 50s, which would go right along with Maggie's description of the man at the pond. After seeing the sketch, Rodney's ex-wife is 90% sure that he was involved with Molly's death. However, Rodney Stanger has never been named a suspect in Molly's case. Heather expressed some concern to me over a pretty crazy loose end involving Rodney that the police failed to investigate until the media got involved. We had a, a person of interest named Rodney Stanger in Florida, and I kept asking. I had found out that he had he was in jail, and they had a, he had lived in a trailer, and that nobody had ever searched the trailer. And I was like, I mean, we had this guy for over a year in our sort of periphery, and Fox News ended up going down to this trailer and and looking around, and like maybe an hour or two after Fox News got there, the state police, you know, had shuffled down there. But they had a picture of this guy from April of 2000, you know, right before Molly disappeared, a fishing license that looked exactly like the sketch. You know, none of this stuff could held, hold up in court because the time had gone by so much and the evidence could have been tampered with. Anyone could have went into that trailer. But the fact that they had missed that ball again, and that was like 10 years after Molly disappeared, was incredibly disheartening. But I watched them miss so many balls. And, and, and I guess that's the choice that victims have to make. You either go down that tunnel and and scream or you, you try to find another path and, and know that what you're doing and what you're saying is a, a, a normal emotional reaction to the behavior of, of people that aren't actually being authentic, aren't actually being trustworthy, aren't actually being, you know, responsible. And you know, that, that is probably the, the hardest thing. I think I've definitely developed, um, you know, huge trust issues from the state police. I think, again, I think that that has been the, the hardest part of this journey besides the actual, you know, loss of my sister is, is having to deal with this incredibly toxic system. 
Rodney Stenger is currently serving a 25-year sentence for killing Crystal Morrison and is set to be released in 2031. I wasn't able to find any statements from Rodney Stenger regarding Molly Bish, but his lawyer has said that his client is innocent until proven guilty. Like John Bish Sr. told reporters, there are almost too many persons of interest in Molly's case. Was it Rodney Stenger? Was it the park commissioner who bought the rope and duct tape? Was it Steve Lucas? There are a ton of theories, rogue cops obsessed with the case, there are leads from all over the country. The bottom line is, we just don't know. Heather told me that several people have unrightfully claimed to solve Molly's case. One of the last updates I was able to find online was about a car that was supposedly buried not too far from where Molly went missing, and that some clothing had been found nearby. When I asked Heather if there were any updates on this, I was disgusted, but unfortunately not shocked by what she told me. No, that was a really sad situation. Uh, again, like I had mentioned, and, and you know, I don't think we touched on this, but um, I had mentioned that I had worked with several different private investigators over the years. And, you know, I was glad and, and, and happy that people would come forward and, and try to help me, especially after my father had his stroke and you know, he, he was sort of leading those efforts. And again, he was at least sort of in the field of criminal justice. I'm like, I'm a teacher over here. I, I, you know, I don't even have, you know, the slightest idea, you know, my, at least my dad, I felt like had some. So I was really grateful when, when um, the number, a, a, a few of them came forward. I would say of all of them that I've worked with, probably only one was authentic. The rest of them were looking for a media attention or um, you know, some sort of popularity, you know, one was starring on Nancy Grace and, and they would find these people of interest and then they would like sort of slam the door and say, that's it. I solved it, Heather. And I would say, well, we don't have an arrest. And, you know, this looks really good circumstantially, but we need more. <laughs> and, and they would say, well, you might never get that Heather. And you just have to settle. This is the person. And I, could never do that because it wasn't, you know, wasn't a hundred percent. And I want a hundred percent. I don't want, I don't want to blame someone for my sister's murder that didn't do it. And I mean, I'll certainly look at all these people and it's really scary how many people fit that profile and were in the area and did do bad things. Um, but, I, you know, I, I felt like it was irresponsible for them to sort of say that they solved Molly's murder and they sort of open and shut the case themselves and that's sort of how the the police kind of were i mean for for us very early they were a very tunnel vision you know we would bring forward our concerns from people that we knew that were around molly and they would say nope we're looking at this person or we're doing this like especially for molly's boyfriend i mean that kid was like crucified in the media and and he was just a kid i mean 16 year old kid came from a troubled family didn't have support networks in place and had to deal with this, a, a huge crime. And in a context where his father, you know, was selling weed out of the house. And, how, you know, how do you deal with that? You know, you get the police, like, ready to arrest you. And, you know, you don't have support. You don't have anyone. Uh, so it, it really made me sad and um, kind of scared that they would go after someone like that. And, and some of them still think of, of him in this context. Um, but, you know, the car was brought up by another um, private, well, she wasn't even a private investigator. She was actually a volunteer in our foundation when I first met her. She was in college. Uh, she went on to get her doctorate in forensics or criminology or something, and then came back to our area and was like, I really want to help you. You know, now my father had had the stroke and I was doing this on my own. She had this great background. She did these behavior profiles. It was really interesting. Um, she helped me run these tip campaigns. And then she kind of went off on her own and, and was like really um, obsessed with this particular suspect or person of interest. And that led to the, the car in the, in the cemetery. She had organized this search and I actually had to be at my daughter's orientation in college. And I was like, I can't really be there. Are you sure you're going to be able to handle this? Because the media gets here, it's going to be a nightmare. Well, 
and and we were trying to do this under the cuff to just see i mean what are the chances the car is going to be buried in a, in a kit truck you know i don't really know the odds on that but I, I'm, I'm thinking you know they're not really high so um she so she ended up doing this whole thing and the media came and it became a mess and she lied and the person who came from the university of connecticut to do the sonar testing disappeared and none of us got reports on what was there um they didn't find anything but they acted like there might be something there but they didn't have any evidence to prove that um she later wrote a book and in this book she claims to have solved molly's case and she claims to have found molly's clothing um, in the area molly disappeared that clothing was ruled out as not being molly's my family ruled it out the police ruled it out yet she continued to uh develop her own narrative saying that that was you know she had done all this work so you know i think again victims families are vulnerable to people that you know maybe are working out their own psychological issues or or their own egos um and and, and take advantage of families certainly that's what that what these past uh, people will do and i'm not even going to bring up their names because i'm not even going to give them the credit uh that's how meaningless they have been to to me they um you know yeah i i i can't um explain the level of betrayal i guess that you know a family goes through initially with the loss and the uh, of the victim and then dealing with the police and and again that um sort of toxic behavior and then being taken advantage of by people uh, and you know i've i've known other victim families that have been taken advantage of by the media. That has not been my experience, but certainly um, the people who sort of mask or, or pretend that they're private investigators or, or are private investigators, uh, they have certainly taken advantage of my family. So the car, nothing. There's nothing with that. That didn't lead to anything. That was really um, a waste of, of very much time. <laughs> Heather is still very active in Molly's case, but unfortunately, the police have become less transparent with her, especially surrounding the topic of DNA evidence, and the new detective doesn't really seem to have a grasp on the case just yet. My detective currently doesn't know anything about the beginning of my sister's case and cannot answer any questions for me. It's almost embarrassing for him, I would think, and, and, and incredibly frustrating for me. And I don't believe he will solve this case. I think it's going to be someone that's doing a podcast, someone that comes forward with information or, you know, hopefully science. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be detective work because it's been lazy. It's been um, not cohesive. Of course, I did have to ask Heather, where is Molly's case today? Well, it is with an investigator. Um Apparently, we have an unresolved case unit in Massachusetts that's been formed in the state police that's separate than, so in our cases, they're held by the district attorney in each county. Um, so we don't like have sheriffs like in other states. Um, so there's a separate unit in the state police. They're supposed to be working on these cases, but I've yet to find out what exactly they're doing in the two years that they've existed. Um, so that's... Uh, you know, there, there's not, there's not much. Um, you know, I'm hoping with the familial DNA that we'll get some traction, but I'm dealing with an investigator that has little knowledge of my case. And, you know, it, it's actually frustrating to talk to him half the time. Um, so we're, we're kind of no closer than we were from the beginning. You know, we've, we've had a number of suspects. We've sort of got as much as we could out of them I you know I think we're just in a place where we need that one piece or we need some science but like I said Heather is still working on Molly's case and working at the Molly Bish Foundation to help other families she has two pretty big initiatives right now first she's taken to TikTok to spread awareness about Molly's case this particular video has almost 150,000 views since she posted it about a month ago to the man responsible for the abduction and murder of my sister, Molly Bish. Every year, my family makes a plea via the media for you to come forward and have a change of heart. 
It's coming on 21 years now. And I'm getting real tired of waiting for you to stop being a coward. I want you to know I'm coming for you. I will not stop. I will not stop finding ways to find you. I will use science. I will use technology. I will use my voice. I will not stop screaming from the mountaintops for justice for Molly. I will not be giving up. Not in my lifetime. And I will outlive you. So before you meet your maker, come forward, give up, turn yourself into the Mass State Police, or keep waiting in your prison. As I get closer and closer, I'm coming for you. I'm coming. The other huge initiative that Heather is trying to push right now is a bill that would help law enforcement in Massachusetts use DNA to find partial familial matches in CODIS. Here is Heather explaining a bit more about the bill on her TikTok account. Recently, I've been working on this familial DNA bill. Familial DNA would allow law enforcement to use CODIS, the system that keeps all our felons, and search it for a family member that might have committed this crime with an unidentified DNA sample from the crime scene. This is science and it works. Please help me and ask your legislator to vote for Senate Bill 1595 in Massachusetts. Thank you. This bill could not only potentially help solve Molly's case, but also many others in Massachusetts. This type of policy already exists in several other states. In my opinion, the more that adopt it, the better. There's so much DNA out there tied up by privacy concerns. We saw the same thing in the yogurt shop murders in Texas. I cannot imagine having a family member that was missing or murdered, having DNA, and not being able to use it to its full potential. Which leads me right to our call to action. If you have any tips related to the disappearance and murder of Molly Bish, please call the tip line at 508-452-7575. And if you are in the Massachusetts area, please contact your legislator and ask them to support S1595. If you visit mollybishfoundation.com, you will see an entire list of Massachusetts state legislators. So if you do live in the area, please take a moment to contact them. I have one last call to action right from me. If you do use TikTok, please go give Heather a follow. Her username is Heather K. Bish. If you enjoyed or found my passionate content about Alyssa on TikTok interesting, I know that you'll feel the same about Heather's. Molly's story is obviously absolutely tragic, but I think it's beautiful the way that Molly's legacy truly lives on through Heather, Maggie, John Sr., John Jr., and the countless families that they've affected. Like I said, I think love's in action, and I can feel my sister's love when, um, you know, like for example, there was an Amber Alert in Western Massachusetts last year, and they were able to get the girl back after a couple hours and you know I called my mom and I said that's because of you all the work you did all those phone calls begging Ted Kennedy you know talking to them about judicial oversight or whatever the contention was in that particular bill um you you convinced them and you helped save that girl and you know the work that we've done in the foundation we've never been able to sort of give data and say we've saved this many kids or we've prevented this many abductions we could never say that because we'll never know we just know that we're arming the people that will listen with um, tools to keep their children safe and the knowledge that you know the world isn't as exactly safe as we thought it was or we hope that it is like i said way back in the beginning of the episode heather is definitely one of my heroes And I am one of those families that she and her family has positively affected. But as always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney. For more information about the podcast, to suggest a case, to see resources used for this episode, and to find out more about how to help the cases I discuss visit voicesforjusticepodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show in your podcast player. It really does help more people find the podcast and these cases in need of justice. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.